very early on when John Cook starts to speak, Charles taps his shoulder to stop him. The silver head of his cane drops off and rolls to the floor. And it's such a symbolic moment at that point that Charles in his chair is waiting for somebody to retrieve it. The court comes to a halt, but I think everybody's waiting to see what actually is going to happen here. And in the end, Charles stoops, picks the silver head up and Cook continues. Hello and welcome to this week's pod. My name's Oliver Webb Carter and I'm the editor and your host. Today I welcome back friend of the show Mark Turnbull to talk about the trial and execution of Charles I. Now I had originally planned to deal with both the trial and execution in one episode but we chatted for so long I've separated them into two with today the trial and on Tuesday as a bonus podcast the execution. We'll then be back on track with the regular schedule next Saturday when I speak with Saul David about Zulu, his book on the Anglo-Zulu War of 1879, which began in January of that year. So we've got two anniversaries here. The trial of Charles was without precedent, and that was part of the problem. The rump parliament of 1649, those MPs remaining who were bent on punishing the king for the wars of the three kingdoms, aka the English civil wars, chose to try the king. In my chat with Mark, we talk about why both the existence of the court as well as the prosecution was so problematic and therefore difficult to pin anything on Charles. We also chat about the part played by the king. Up until this huge event, Charles had been pretty hopeless. And as you may have heard from my recent talk with Leander de Lisle, his wife, Henrietta Maria, was far more competent. But it was the trial when he finally showed what he could have been. Mark Turnbull is an author and historian and currently writing a biography of Charles, so we're in good hands. Coming up on Tuesday, we'll be talking about the execution. So there's a spoiler for you. Charles does indeed get his head chopped off. All this took place between the 20th and 30th of January, so anniversary right now. Please do subscribe and you'll get episodes added to your feed. Coming up, as I said, I've got Saul David on the Zulu War, Gary Sheffield on World War I, John Sayles on 18th century Scotland and America, and much, much more. If you can rate or review, that would be great. But in the meantime, I'll hand you over to me speaking with Mark Turnbull. Mark Turnbull, welcome back to the podcast. It's great to speak to you again. And today we're talking about the trial and the execution of King Charles I. Hi, Ollie. Yeah, um, yeah. Looking forward to talking to you again. It's great to catch up. It certainly is. We're at the uh, we at we're at the anniversary. It was in 1649 that this occurred. Now, um, it's great that the listeners get to hear from you because not only have you written novels about the period, and we spoke briefly well we spoke we, well we had a good chat um last yeah. year uh talking about charles the first um and that was in the context of your trilogy of novels the latest of which was the king's cavalier but you've just been telling me about your new history book charles the first's private life and this means that it's a real you know we're very lucky to have someone who's got a a new history of charles the first coming on to talk about probably now i'm going to say something you may disagree with but 
probably the 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 final week or so of his life when he actually performed admirably as a king um in contrast to uh, his earlier life which is of course the trial and, and the execution yeah i i think um yeah i think it was his uh, finest performance I don't think it was, I think when you look at his role as king, I think it's definitely, there's areas that he didn't uh, perform well in, but there are areas that he really did perform quite well in. And um, definitely the the trial and the execution were um, starring. Good stuff. Well, well, let's, let's, let's start. I, I think the trial began, I think, on the 20th of, of January, 1649. And we're coming off the back of, or, or rather, this is within the, um, the control of the rump parliament. So I thought we could just start talking, just to give the listeners a bit of background. Obviously, we've had the civil wars. Um, it would just be good to understand we've got the civil wars have ended. Charles has um, been uh, has been carrying on uh, negotiating with enemies of uh, parliament. And Parliament has decided um, enough's enough, hasn't it? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so you've got not only the the civil war of sixteen that, that broke out officially in sixteen forty two, and uh, Charles surrendered himself in sixteen forty six. Um, there was the uprisings, which is is called uh, the Second Civil War in sixteen forty eight. Um, so he's been militarily defeated twice. Um, the 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 period between the end of the first conflict and uh, the second conflict, during that time, you know, Charles is a captive. Uh, he's first held by the Scots. Uh, he surrenders to the Scots at first. Um, he's then transferred into uh, English ownership. Um, some see an exchange for a, a wad of money. Um, and then at that moment, there's there's approaches to Charles from all different angles. So he ha- so everybody is looking for a settlement uh, that works for them. Uh, so you've you've got Charles who who has got to the point where he has some clear red lines that he's not going to cross uh, in terms of the Church of England. You, you've got the Scots who, although they've handed him over to the English, they are by no means done. Uh, the Scots uh, do not want any. Uh, procedure against the king they don't want him off the throne uh, in comparison to a lot of the English um, parliamentarians so the Scots are continuously looking for a resolution for a deal Um, the English parliament have their own terms that they present to him Uh, the the new model army are actually then uh, get to the point where they present terms now Charles in the middle of this has as I say his own um, set of principles um, he's got his family telling him uh, you know what to give up and you know to just to agree to to terms the queen at one point says just agree to everything but I think in in one measure of Charles it says a lot that he didn't just ever agree to everything that was put before him with the intention of renision on that you know, he he never did agree to the the ultimate reforms that that were requested about the church. Um, so it, so it was a, a very very difficult time, if you like. It, it was still a, a period of warfare over the peace 
when I was researching the biography that, that I think is really underdone, um, we don't realize just how much Charles gave up from the period of say, 1641, right through the civil wars to that point where he's in captivity. He gave up quite a lot. Um, for example, often officially in parliament from the throne, um, agreeing, for example, that parliament should meet every three years. Uh, you know, these prerogative powers, um, he'd, he'd given them up then. Uh, and to that point in captivity, that's when he was at a point where he felt that he couldn't in conscience give up um, anymore. But he did actually move again. So, for example, the control of the militia, he'd never formally agreed to give that up. But in captivity, he was willing to negotiate on that and say that he would do it for perhaps 10 years. Um, then there was talk that he would give it up entirely if that would be given back to his son after his death. Um, so there was still some manoeuvring that, that he was willing to do, but there, there, there was certainly uh, less, less movement for him. Um, and I think that's when he was looking for the best deal. Um, that's when the accusations can be leveled that he was playing one side against another, which he, he was. Um, but at the same time, all of these other factions were hoping to get one over the others um, by using Charles. So how do we get to the first day of trial, on the, uh, which was on the 20th of January? So there, there was a definite step change uh, that, that brought that about. Um, and first and foremost, um, at, at the end of 1647, the Scots, as I'd said, had been continually approaching the king, offering military support. The New Model Army had offered to support him. Um, Parliament had their own terms, which weren't particularly you know, good for Charles. Um, the, the best terms, ironically, for Charles would have been the armies. But really, for him, they had no legitimate power to present those terms. So if he accepted those, it would be a, a sign of the power of the sword going above uh, the power of parliament, for example, a legitimate parliament. So Charles eventually agrees with the Scots. OK, you know, uh, I'll make a, a deal with you. You know, you support me militarily um, in, in exchange for Charles agreeing to Presbyterianism, to establish Presbyterianism in England, perhaps for some sort of limited term. And in the end, that, that causes a Scottish army to eventually, and I say eventually because it took them quite some time, uh, to cross the border in his support. And that coincides with a lot of the uprisings in 1648 uh, that Parliament had to deal with and the New Model Army. Um, so the Scots was only one aspect of that, but it was perhaps the biggest threat. Um, and, and, and that is interesting because obviously for nowadays we view Scotland as, as part of the Union and uh, whilst it's a separate country, we're all united. It, in 1649, Scotland's a foreign country, effectively, isn't it? It, it is, yeah. The, the thing that binds, binds it together is Charles and, and the Stuart monarchy. Um, but that's the thing. This is why throughout all of the, the end game of the Civil War and the trial and the execution, Scottish leaders were continually um, supporting. I should rephrase that. They were continuously disagreeing with any sort of trial uh, removal and certainly any sort of threat to Charles's life, because Charles was one of their 
uh, people to them. You know, they saw the fact that they've got a Scottish born king on the English throne that gave them the heads up. Um, and, and they just probably feared that if he, he was removed, who would be the replacement? And would that lessen Scotland's authority and, and influence? And is he, when Scotland invades, is he under the custody of uh, Colonel Wally at this stage, who uh, listeners may remember, I've discussed him with Robert Harris, who, who's written a, a very good novel about um, Wally and, and yeah. his in-law, I forget his son's name actually. Um, but, but is he under the custody of Wally at this stage? Uh, so that's just afterwards. So, so what happens is Charles is, um, he is initially taken from the Scots um, and, and kept in captivity by uh, parliamentarian commissioners and uh, um, army, a, a small force. The new model army, there's a breakaway um, element of the new model army who, who kidnap him um, and take him from parliament's control into the army. And they hope to do a, a separate deal, you know, again, just the new model army is comprised of independents who are much more against a state church. They want more freedom of worship for sects. Um, Charles, obviously, you know, I've mentioned that he can't do a deal with the army, which, you know, because that just goes against the whole principle that he's standing for. And eventually he is taken to Hampton Court, where Colonel Wally is the governor. And um, he is dealt with remarkably well. Uh, the army treat him very well. Uh, Wally is very respectful. Uh, he even thanks Wally at the point when he escapes for, for the, the way that he's treated. You know, it's almost like a mini court again, you know, so he's allowed to see his children. He's being painted while in captivity. You know, artists are there. Uh, he's allowed to see friends. Um, a, a lot of the court formality is restored, which wasn't there in parliamentarian captivity. Um, and then he escapes from Hampton Court, um, concerned about a threat to his life from leveller slash radical Republican elements. The army risks being split. You've got the, the element um, led by Fairfax and Cromwell who don't want radical outcomes uh, they certainly don't support the levelers um calls for you know votes for all men over 21 things like that um outrageous demands like that yeah <laughs> that, that, that's it so and then you've got the other element of the new model army which is more militant who are pushing for a trial execution even you know calling charles that man of blood and at the point when the Scots invade, Charles is in Carisbrook. He's fled Hampton Court and Colonel Wally. Um, he actually ends up in Carisbrook. Um, and, and roughly when, when are we um, at this stage? It was 1647. It was at the end of 1647 when he escapes Hampton Court and Wally and goes to Carisbrook. The governor of Carisbrook, it, Wally and the governor of Carisbrook, Robert Hammond, uh, are both relatives of Cromwell. Um, and really he's gone from the frying pan into the fire he's on an island it's easier to uh pin him down um hammond he thinks might be friendly because he's a relative of charles's chaplain but actually he's also a relative of a new model army colonel um so yeah it, it doesn't turn out the way that he, th he thinks and hammond is on the face of it loyal to he's an army officer 
but he is loyal to Parliament. And when it comes to the crunch, Hammond takes his orders from Parliament over the New Model Army. Okay, and that so, leads to another severance. <laughs> I see. Right. So, so then Parliament. Um, am I jump? Tell me if I'm jumping ahead here. But Parliament um, over Christmas and then into January is deciding what to do with Charles, and then around around uh, the I think it's New Year's Day they start um, sidelining the House of Lords who are sympathetic to the King. And, and and therefore, this is where you get the rump parliament and they decide they're going to put Charles on trial. Yeah, so end of 1647, he's in Carisbrook. At that point, Parliament have had enough. They are not um, willing to negotiate. They know that the Scots, you know, it, it's not a big secret that the Scots are, uh, you know, giving him terms. It's not a big secret that he is tempted by those terms. Um, and Parliament really sit tight and prepare to see what happens. Um, they then deal with the uprisings, the Scots enter with an army, they are systematically crushed um, and defeated. Cromwell goes up to Preston. So Charles is, he faces that second military defeat um, after the Scots are vanquished. And then at that point, when you think that he should be at his lowest ebb, um, Parliament begin to reopen negotiations. However, it's not easy. So what they do is they, they allow him to have his chaplains back around him. Uh, they agree that they're going to give him an, a certain amount of time to, to negotiate with them over their propositions. Propositions are not particularly the best ones. They don't really change their stance, uh, Parliament. Um, and Charles is pinned down. So in uh, the Isle of Wight, uh, he's in Newport, um, he spends day after day uh, meeting these commissioners, but it's not a verbal negotiation. So these commissioners are tightly controlled by Westminster. They are given uh, criteria and, and points that they've got to go through with the king. Exchanges of written papers happen between the king and his councillors and the parliamentarian commissioners. They address every aspect and report back to Westminster. And only when Westminster are content with the king's reply, uh, do they agree to that point and move on to the next. So it's such a fine tooth comb that, that Charles goes through these. You know, he, he compares himself at that point to a commander in a besieged house um, and says he's going to make some of the stone walls his, his tombstone. But he does ultimately give way on a lot of points. This, this is the point when Charles gives way um, on more than he has ever done. And he ends up apologising to his son for that. But it does get him to the point where Parliament agree, OK, you haven't granted everything, but you've made sufficient concessions for us to invite you to London, give you talk about giving you an income again and... Um, uh, re-establishing you on the throne all along at this point the new model army are looking on and watching uh, and thinking to themselves well hang on a minute you know there's going to be no room for us independence we're not going to see a change in constitution or government here um, you know the king will be re-established in a hollow you know as a shadow of his former self but who will be in charge certainly not them 
they protest along the way and then in the end uh, the army take matters into their own hands and they follow through on earlier threats they'd made and they they eventually purge parliament so they they head to westminster and when, and when you say that they um where's cromwell in all this that's that's a million dollar question so <laughs> like like everything with cromwell he steers in the shadows when crucial critical divisive uh moments present themselves you've got his family his close associates that are more prominent in the dealings but nobody necessarily knows what cromwell's truly thinking you know letters for example accorded uh there's alias is used I've seen letters that Cromwell has written um, in archives, and um, there there is a clear reference that Cromwell is aware that there is a chance that Parliament will be purged, and he's not in disagreement with that. But I think what he's looking for is: does it have to be right now? Does it have to be a purge? Do we just um, have another election? So, yeah, so he, I don't think he's he's closed off. Certainly he never speaks out. And I think that's a, a telling thing for Cromwell. You know, the, the type of person that he was, you know, he wasn't um, afraid of speaking out if he would disagree with something or if he believed that God would disagree with that. And, and these were his closest associates. He's only in Yorkshire. Yes, it's towards the end of the year, bad weather, but he is a cavalry commander. He will have good cavalry troops that could ride to London with messages if needed but yeah the the face of the purge is handled by again a minor army official so a minor army officer um colonel pride and uh pride um takes parliament by surprise and turns away uh, a, a large number of mps imprisons some other ones um, and really hundreds of mps then are excluded in one way or the other and the remainder the rump are, are the mps who are more militant more independent um, and sympathize with the army and then immediately the negotiations and the invitation for charles to come to london are ended and the new model army land on uh, the isle of Wight and take control of the king's person they arrest robert hammond the governor and um, from that point Charles is under control of the army. And that's really when he is going to be put on trial because, as you say, the rump parliament, that's the desire of these more extreme elements of parliament. The House of Lords are out that's of the way. Right. right. Yeah. So, so at that point, House of Lords are still there. Um, however, you know, the, the rump uh, MPs that are left um, bring in an intention to try the king they they pass um, a motion to set up a high court of justice um, the lords tries to stop that they they try to adjourn uh, you know and say that in the hope naive hope really that if they are absent nothing can proceed and and that's when the house of commons says we are the voice of the people we can do whatever we please you know if we pass it it's passed it no longer needs the House of Lords. Okay, so this is the early days of of sixteen forty nine of January sixteen forty nine, isn't it? That's right. So, yeah. 
so so we have the high court of justice which is a this is the trial of the king um so what what's charles does charles discuss a strategy with anyone before he goes in or or is this sort of he's in isolation so he's really has his only himself as counsel he is yeah so he is in isolation I mean, at that point so that there isn't anyone really that he can talk to um he probably knows well enough the queen's opinions um they both have clashed before then um over it. It, it it was a particular law point for charles that the queen didn't seem to agree or understand his conscience about um what he would agree to and and edward hyde you know said himself that when the king's isolated and left to his own devices he's often quite his best advisor you know he is his own best advisor um and and at that point I think, personally speaking, I, just, I think that Charles gets to the point where he, he thinks that perhaps he has displeased God enough to the point where he, he thinks, well, perhaps it is best that I do go, you know, and, and if I stand fast for these principles, if it does end in my execution, then, you know, that's God's will and, and that's God's judgment. I'll take that if it means that my son uh, regains the throne with the prerogative powers that i'd lost so so these principles um which i, I guess are the argument is it, it, it's it's really the argument that he makes at the trial in the in the first day or so of the trial where he refuses to even accept the authority of the court because as sovereign he is the ultimate authority so how how can the court um, take that authority from him with no act of parliament and no legal ba basis is that absolutely yeah i mean it, it's a masterstroke in a way it's the best of a bad situation uh, and really you've got on the one hand you've got people that say that's just charles being stubborn you know not willing to compromise how dare he you know question the court when he's before it but on the other end of the spectrum that's him as well potentially thinking well and before this uh, power, uh, which is what he called them, if he uh, gives his, um, you know, if, if he if he pleads, then he's acknowledging their their authority. But it's beyond that; he's actually acknowledging the authority of that rump parliament. He's acknowledging the um, the authority of the army purging that. You know, he's really. Um, rubber stamping an absolutely um, unprecedented non-constitutional act which goes against his duties as a monarch as well so he can't really plead but at the same time he's in a quandary because he does try um, and play the court and use um, a bit of a card by saying let me speak to the full houses of parliament lords and commons assembled with the excluded members because he really knows deep down that that potentially might get him somewhere um and of yeah, course because the, the house of lords uh, would be sympathetic to him wouldn't they as as with those mps who've been pushed out that that's it yeah and, and all along charles even even in the days when charles was having disputes in his earlier uh the earlier aspect of his reign he used the house of lords um, and often praised them, you know, encouraged them, uh, 
and sort of dismissed the comments um, because I think he, he realized that he, he, he couldn't alienate both. I think this is, again, another ploy to try and bring the the support of the lords in to scupper things but you know he, he did in the end have a very good point in what he was saying that he stood more for the liberties of the people than anyone in that court uh, because he was the in his eyes he was the last bastion of that old um legal uh, authority you know the, the the house of lords has been put to one side the church of england has been you know the bishops have been excluded um you've got a huge portion of MPs that have been excluded. So really, the king is the last legitimate uh, link from the past. Yeah. So it may, when you when you when you frame it in such a way, Mark, it does sound like a it was a hugely revolutionary um, decision to by by the rump to go for this. No precedent whatsoever. And I suppose had Charles accepted the authority of the court. Precedent would have been set and caused lots exactly. of troubles for um, for his for his descendants. That exactly it, yes, and and you know it was all about precedence. You know the in the 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 commissioners and MPs were scouring history to look for precedence. Um, you know, one of the things that they touched on was Mary Queen of Scots. You know, they were saying in Scotland they do um, they have precedent of removing kings from the throne. So anointed kings are removed, you know, if they go against their people or the, the will of the people. Um, but obviously they couldn't use that in, in England because it was unprecedented. And, and the other unprecedented side of this is trying Charles for treason. You know, again, that that totally turns on its head um, what treason is, you know, that he can actually be uh, declared guilty of being a traitor to the people. The other risk not withstanding the trial itself is is it was a public trial wasn't it that that's right yeah very, so, very yeah public. so why did they choose to go down that road because again as you you know i i think the trans was it the transcript became a bit of a bestseller and uh the whole the court proceedings were were poured over by by many many people that that's right yeah so so the trial was public i mean it was heavily guarded you know london you know in itself was in lockdown they they were relatively secure um but i i think what they wanted was that extra legitimacy perhaps perhaps there was a, an argument from moderates to say what are we replacing uh the government with here you know what will happen if charles is removed um so i think that the trial itself perhaps would appease you know and ensure that they're not out there to just murder him which charles at many points thought that that would happen they're out there to publicly try and remove slash execute um the king it, it's it, it's extraordinary really because um had they done it behind closed doors yeah it really would have looked like even more of a stitch up than it than it really was what what, yeah. what were the what were the people of london do we know what they were thinking was there support for the king um because london was a, a parliamentarian city wasn't it yes that's right it had always been a parliamentarian um uh city and you know if, if it wasn't for london it's doubtful whether parliament could have fought the war for so long you know it was just that financial base 
But I mean, that that's London itself. That the people themselves, I think it's marked by a, a silence um, and it, it's a definite silence. So I think by that point, I think people were perhaps shocked at what it had come to. Uh, they were waiting to see what would happen. There was some intrigue about, you know, what might happen. Um, hope, I think, as well. Hope that finally a resolution might be found, and surely they they will not go through with any threat to the king. But it may just get both parties to a point where some sort of stable government can come out of this. Um, and, and I think the other risk, you know, the other thing here is. Any sympathy for the king would be foolish because at this point he's been defeated militarily twice. So people would think twice about what, how futile would it be to try some sort of uprising, you know, or, or anything like that, that hasn't got a major sponsor. So I think for, for Parliament, probably I think they felt that the biggest threat to them wouldn't come from royalists or, or the you know, a popular revolt in the city, it would probably come from the likes of Denmark, Holland, France, you know, or a, a foreign country, or even the Scots again. So I, I think they were very much thinking, well, if we do this in public, we can't be accused by these powers of some sort of underhand murder. So um, I just wanted to talk a little bit about some of the characters involved in the trial. And I was reading, I was reading about John Bradshaw, who I think ultimately was the court president for the trial. Um, and right. I was reading that his wife was um, uh, owed to be a fly on the wall when that was happening. She was <laughs> telling him, you shouldn't be the court president because you, this, you know, that you're then mar a marked man to all royalists because you're going to be the one um, overseeing a, a trial that could ultimately end up in a conviction and therefore... Um, the death of the king and poor old um, poor old Bradshaw did he originally say no he did yeah so originally said no then reconsidered uh, probably that's when he earned the tirade from Mrs Bradshaw um, <laughs> I mean he, he's a 46 year old he's from minor gentry uh, he's chief justice of Ches Cheshire um, for around two years at that point. So he's a very minor official in the, the legal world. Um, but he is unquestionably a devout radical who has strong principles. He's not going to flinch from whatever that court um, decide to go with. So really, he, he's ideal for the job. You know, you, you've got all of the, the legal leaders who have distanced themselves or either refused to take part. Yeah, uh, yes, it's the, the elite of the legal establishment. Um, uh, <laughs> typical lawyers, uh, apologies <laughs> to any lawyers listening, but they immediately back out, don't they? They, they see things are going to get a little bit spicy, don't they? Yeah, absolutely. So if, if you think about it, it's almost like a, a, a pride purge of the legal profession in a way, but without soldiers, they've all just self-purged and gone, you know, <laughs> and, and left just that rump uh, in, in the legal arm. Um, and uh, Bradshaw's picked. Um, so yeah, so and, and they were right to. We should we should we should point out because the uh, listeners may well know about the Act of Oblivion, which um, I don't know wh wh where was. Uh, I'm assuming Bradshaw's wife, Mrs. Bradshaw, was absolutely right, and Bradshaw was one of those 
um, men included in the act of oblivion? Yeah, I mean, Bradshaw um, had died by the time of the, the restoration. Um, well, that's a lucky escape. Yeah, but I mean, what, what his wife could be thinking here is, um, for example, um, the, the leveler leader, Thomas Rainsborough, um, he, he was targeted by royalists. So even after the war had finished, you know, during um, uh, the 1648 uprisings, the, the royalists uh, re-established themselves in Pontefract Castle. Um, Rainsborough, mistrusted by Fairfax and Cromwell and the grandees because he is very much anti-Charles, you know, wanting a trial. They send him up to deal with that uh, insurrection. And it's during that time when, you know, when he is um, in Yorkshire, he's waiting for the royalists to capitulate. The, the royalist agents, or, or at least assassins, arrive at his house, pretend that they've got a message from Cromwell. Uh, they are let into his bedroom and they, they stab him to death. So Mrs. Bradshaw really knows what could befall her husband and the family, you know, if he is associated as a leading um, opponent of, of the king to this degree, you know, responsible for his trial and, and execution, you know, that, that, that is putting a target on his head. And that's probably why he wore a, a metal, <laughs> a metal hat <laughs> with felt padding, you know, so the, at the trial, perhaps, uh, his wife had said, okay, if you're going to do it, at least dress the part. And, and that was to stop any physical attacks on him. Wow. Yeah. Mrs. So was, um, I, I've got a lot of sympathy for Mrs. Bradshaw. I'm, I'm a fan of hers. Um, so uh, Cromwell, what was Cromwell's behaviour during the trial? Because uh, as you say, he's, he, he's sounding rather Machiavellian. Um, in the... <laughs> Yeah, I said earlier that a lot of the time Cromwell was either absent or he didn't document or, you know, potentially what he did document was under an alias name. So, you know, you can't necessarily say it's definitely him. Um, but during the trial, I think that was one point when Cromwell couldn't avoid declaring his uh, intentions or or be becoming that leader to see something through, something as divisive as this through. And, and it I do believe that it's down to Cromwell that the trial and the execution succeeded because uh, by that point, General Fairfax uh, was in open disagreement of execution um, and was actually working to try and get a last minute reprieve by in time for the king. So really, when you think about it, who have you got left? If you take Fairfax away, you've got his extremely capable second-in-command, Cromwell, who is de facto head of the army. It's the army that are maintaining control. It's the army that have stopped the post. It's the army that are blocking the streets to stop movement. It's the army garden, Charles. It's the army that have got complete control, and Cromwell, as second-in-command, is ultimately at the head Bradshaw as Lord President of the court doesn't have any power as such you know he's just there as the face of the court uh, he has a grand title he's given decent lodgings and a guard to follow him around but in the scheme of government in the scheme of the army he doesn't have command so it needs somebody that's respected and strong enough 
to carry okay. this. Now, so how did the court? Um, so we've we've talked about the the trial, and we've talked about Charles's effective defence, i.e., not even acknowledging the court. How did the prosecution deal with that, and how did they reach their ver verdict, the ultimate verdict of, of guilty? So, um, so what what Charles was was doing is he he was avoiding uh, pleading, and um, Bradshaw gradually lost patience um you know to the, to the point where he, he's interrupting the king there's a bit of a verbal contest between them um charles gets across some very key messages as i said before you know he's able to get some propaganda points across to say you know i am the last um bastion of, of legality you know if if this force can do this to me uh, what can any person in england um call their own you know how safe is anybody uh, if they can do this to me i am standing up for the the laws the established church so he's he's really hidden his colors to the mast um and the the prosecution in the end they try and wear charles down um that isn't going to work they then explore evidence you know to try and say that charles was involved in the battles and the and the the killings in the end they just proceed to sentence so again you know they they decide that a lack of a plea is almost a guilty uh, plea in itself um and they, they proceed to sentence and that that catches charles off balance i think at that point you know there's a lot of uh stuttering now charles did have a stammer uh through it throughout his life but there's eyewitness accounts to say that during that trial um considering the the difficulties of it the challenges um he spoke impeccably um and it was at the point when bradshaw pronounced the sentence that charles starts to panic a little bit and say oh, hang on you know um can i be heard uh, and, and they cut him off and say nope you know you've had your chance uh, we've now pronounced sentence you can't be heard and you know, he's saying, by your favour, sir, you know, and then he's escorted out. He leaves a, a letter which they don't read. He's got nothing else that he can rely on, but perhaps he's looking for time. He's looking for extra support. At, at one point during the proceedings, um, you, you asked, you know, about Cromwell's rules. So at one point during the proceedings, Charles says, please, can I be heard? He's arguing with Bradshaw and saying, let me be heard before Parliament. Um, I've got a letter here. And John Downs, one of the commissioners, stands up and says, have we got hearts of stone? Um, and at that point, the commissioners adjourn. Downs is put in his place, really, by Cromwell. Saying, We're at this point in proceedings that there's no going back. That's it. And um, the court proceeds, as I said, to judgment. And another... Um thing that we probably should mention is charles uh, quite early on actually doesn't he tap his cane uh against the prosecution um uh, uh, lawyer he does yeah so th this is uh, very early on when john cook starts to speak charles taps his shoulder to stop him the silver head of his cane drops off and rolls to the floor and it's such a symbolic moment at that point that Charles in his chair is waiting for somebody to retrieve it. The court comes to a halt, but I think everybody's waiting to see what actually is going to happen here. And in the end, 
Charles stoops, picks the silver head up, and Cook continues. You're absolutely right that that's symbolic, because that, to me, I know it's early on in the trial, but that, to me, almost, and we only know that because we know of subsequent events, of course, but um, that moment seems to me to be when they watch the king have to pick up a piece of um, kit off the floor, which he'd probably never done in his life. And then the fact that it's, you know, the head of a the cane is falling off, it, that is when um, you can look at that and see it as the moment when it's going to be all over for him. Yeah, it's a, it's a good point, actually, isn't it? You're considering the head of the cane has come mm. off and they're, they're going to cut the king's head off. Indeed, indeed. Yeah. So, but we, we've, we've talked a long time and I would planned to do the trial and the execution in one go. But um, we've got we, I think we've come to the end of this this episode. But can you come back and we'll talk about the execution? And I'll yeah, make I'd love to. Two-parter. Yeah, that would be brilliant. Yeah. Now, we continue the chat with Mark on Tuesday with the execution that took place on the 30th of January, 1649. Do subscribe. You'll get that automatically. I hope you enjoyed our chat. Thank you and good night.